Welcome to The Read Along. A mini book club for your ears. A proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. I'm your host, Scott. I'm your other host, Anita. And join us on a journey through a good book. One chapter chapter at at a time. This episode of The Read-Along is brought to you by The Shared Mic. Can you remember the last time you spoke to someone from a totally different generation who wasn't a member of your family? There is so much we can learn from listening to people both younger and older than ourselves. The Shared Mic Conversations for the Ages is a unique interview format intergenerational podcast by age-friendly Edmonton, bringing together Edmontonians of different ages and backgrounds to discuss topics which matter to them. Season 2 launches October 5th and features conversations about cultivating friendships, building careers, exploring virtual theater, volunteerism, and much more. Find The Shared Mic on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Shared Mic is brought to you by the Edmonton Seniors Coordinating Council and the City of Edmonton. Fall has fallen. As you listen to this episode, the vernal equinox will have come and gone, indicating the beginning of autumn, the greatest season. It's my favorite. It is. It's a lovely season. Is that that what makes it the greatest? That it's my favorite? Well, it's the greatest for many reasons. It's pretty. It's not sweltering hot. No. Nope. Not blistering cold. Nope. I love that. Right it's in not, the middle. It's not uh, messy the way that spring tends to be too, because spring has all of that mud and slush. Some places have spring that is very beautiful. It's very green and warm and lovely. Spring in Edmonton is horrible. Yeah, it's gross. It's slushy and dirty and gross because there's still so much snow. Our spring doesn't happen until like June. It, yeah, I hate spring. Spring is my least favorite. But autumn, the fall, yeah. is my absolute favorite because the trees are changing color and it's absolutely beautiful. Also, like most of the best holidays happen in autumn. Uh, your birthday, my birthday. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. But Canadian Thanksgiving. Canadian Thanksgiving, yes. For those of you who are Well, if you want to get really technical about it, American Thanksgiving as well. Yeah, that's true. Uh, also, Halloween. Mm-hmm. Halloween is my favorite holiday uh, ever. For someone who's not super keen on horror, nope. Nita really does love Halloween. But I do love Halloween. It is a costume and candy-based holiday, and that pleases me. Something to look forward to. Hopefully, the fall won't be as uh, stressful as the rest of the year has been so far. I mean, Halloween will probably be uh, pretty low-key this year, Thanksgiving uh-huh. as well. But, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll push through. I know. And, and it hopefully next like... year will be better feels like such a waste of a perfect Halloween because Halloween this year falls on a Saturday of a full moon. Come on. Yeah. feels like, oh, we have this perfect Halloween coming. It's going to be wasted by COVID. Stupid COVID. Well, it is what it is. But uh, as usual, we've started the episode by talking about the weather because we have literally nothing else to talk about. Conversation. Uh, and we should, uh, we should press on because we have finished our most recent novel. Yes. It is done. It is. Uh, last chapter was, wasn't even really a chapter. It was an epilogue. It was the end. Takes place four months after events (laughs) as, uh, Beth and Dom and the kids drive off to a cozy Greek villa to meet up with Flora and, I mean, what's left of her family. As they take a, a, a portion a, of her family, yeah. As they take a vacation after the fallout of the uh, events of the previous several months, 
<laughs> yes. And then Zan drops the hint that she knows that Beth committed a whole murder there. And uh, that is essentially it. That is the end of the novel. Yep. That is the end of the story. That Where is the stopped. end of Beth's journey. And uh, that leads us into today, where we're finally going to take a look back at the whole of the novel yes. of Perfect Little Children by Sophie Hanna. So this is where we get all pretentious and examine the work as a whole. Yeah, and I am going to start by saying that I think this novel was hurt by us reading it in pieces. I agree. I, we touched on this a little bit before, didn't we? Yeah, a little bit. Um, it was something we were worried might be the case. And now that I've had a little bit of time to think on it, this novel, unlike some of our previous novels, which were a delight to read chapter by chapter, to have an opportunity to kind of languish in mm -hmm. what we had just read and think about it, um, this novel is much more of... I'm going to liken it to a popcorn movie. Okay. Like a, like a summer blockbuster. The kind of movie that you go and see and it washes over you and it's delightful. But if you really dwelt on it, you'd be like, that didn't make sense at all. <laughs> Wait a second. And uh, this is not to say that this book doesn't make sense. But I feel like having dwelt on it chapter by chapter and having had the opportunity to think about it, it broke the pace of the book in a way that made me and possibly you and hopefully maybe not our readers not enjoy it as much as if we had just read it all in like two days yeah i i hit on this about two-thirds of the way through the book when the suspense was starting to build up that this book was clearly not meant to be consumed the way we were consuming it yes right it's meant to be read in larger chunks i would argue or just you, all at once yeah if you couldn't read this all at once to read it in maximum four chunks yeah if you were if you were barreling through this you'd probably enjoy it more because you don't have time to dwell on it and i think that i think that part of the thing that sells me on that kind of being the intended pace of the book as well is the fact that we're pointed straight at the villain right from get-go yeah. i was i was expecting this to be more like when we read the word is murder by anthony horowitz uh which i'm not going to spoil here just in case you haven't read that yeah. one and would like to go back and, and listen to that read through and i recommend it it was quite good it's a detective story we we languished on the chapters we talked about clues and it was okay to to spend that time and because it was a detective story there were deliberate twists and turns along the way and in this book it really felt more like we were pointed straight at the bad guy right at first and we were just on a trajectory to get there and it was just a matter of piecing together what was going on along the way. Yeah, and doing it in so many pieces meant it was a very slow trajectory. Well, because we were reading it in little chunks. Yeah, and I think it lost a lot of its oomph because of that. Yeah, because we were both frustrated at times. Oh, so frustrated. Because it felt like we weren't getting anywhere. Mm -hmm. But that's because we were spending a week in between each chapter. If yeah. we had read this over a weekend, it probably wouldn't have felt mm -hmm. so miserly with information. Right. Well, and pausing between each chapter to talk about it as opposed to taking in big information if you will yeah and then like settling it all at the end we were doing it in little pieces right so the f the flow i think was interrupted yeah and that maybe hurt the book maybe so my question then i, I have two which are unrelated first question 
We think it was meant to be consumed in bigger pieces. Why was it broken into so many little chapters? Why not just write a couple of big chunks instead of breaking it up? That's a good question. Because a chapter break is a natural stopping point. There's a reason why our podcast is structured around chapters. Yeah. Because much like if you were watching a TV series episode by episode, we're reading a book chapter by chapter. And the chapter is the natural start and stop point of, of any novel. Like mm -hmm. that's that's the point where if you've been intending to take a break from your book, you break at a chapter. So even so, okay. even a longer book need not have a lot of chapters. You could have a thousand page book that's ten chapters long. It's true. Um, it's really long chapters. They incredibly long chapters. But I'm saying that functionally you could do that. There's nothing saying you couldn't. No. And if your intended pace of a book is to just like go, why not just go? Why have chapter breaks at all? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I'm I'm agreeing with you. I'm just I'm drawing out the thought a little bit. The only thing I can figure is she's putting in optional pauses. Oh, maybe. Like I said, maybe you can't read it all at once. Maybe you need to break it up into three or four pieces. So you reach a, a natural, you know, quote unquote lull mm -hmm. every so often and you choose one that's good for you. Well, there's also like natural story beats too, right? Like um you don't want to write a continuous three-week span for Beth, especially if she's going to have some downtime along the way. So the chapter break is a good spot to jump ahead a little or uh, go to somewhere different, like emails between yeah, yeah, her and enough. Dom, stuff yeah, okay. like that. So, I mean, there is there is a structural reason to have a chapter break other than just like a transition within the chapter. Mm -hmm. Because a transition can take you from place to place, but oh. a transition tends to be shorter. A chapter break, weeks could have passed. Mm -hmm. And we did that a couple of times with little inter-chapter uh, transitions. Yeah. So my second question, unrelated to that first one, I have not read a lot of thrillers. Is this normally how they are meant to be? Is that a thriller format that you're meant to consume it all at once? Yes, that is kind of the structure of a thriller because a thriller is structured kind of the same as a horror story. Thrillers are living genre-wise in the middle of the Venn diagram between horror and mystery. Right. And so you get kind of that horror story pace, which tends to be a little bit faster than a mystery, because a mystery likes to take its time, because it wants you to have an opportunity to puzzle through things, mm -hmm. and it wants to have its characters be able to puzzle through Lots things. Lots of twists and turns. and Yeah, but yeah. a thriller doesn't give you the time to do that. A thriller grabs you by the hand and says, let's go, because we don't have time for that, because there's, there's somebody chasing us, or someone is in danger yeah. right now. There's a, there's a big drop that we have to get to. Exactly. And so you get that faster pace. You get that horror movie pace from it. I wonder if maybe thrillers are not a good fit for our specific podcast, if pace is important and we don't want to ruin another book. But on the other hand, we have read a supernatural horror story that I would argue was fairly fast paced. but Yeah, but I wouldn't call it a thriller. But wasn't necessarily ruined by us reading it chapter by chapter. And I would argue that uh, Artemis was kind of a conspiracy thriller. And I don't feel that it was specifically ruined by us reading it chapter by chapter. Fair enough. So, so maybe I don't it was know, just this one? I don't know that it's necessarily a genre thing. Okay. Maybe it's just this specific book didn't fit our format as well. Or, I mean, maybe we're trying to justify just not having liked it all that much. Maybe. Which is possible. And I say that with all due love and <laughs> respect and admiration for Sophie Hanna, who is a published author uh, multiple times over, knows her craft, 
and clearly has a skill with the language that I personally could only ever aspire to. But maybe this book just wasn't our cup of tea. Art is famously subjective. It's true. And what someone might say is a brilliant novel, another person might be like, nah, that was contrived garbage. <laughs> and Which is not to say Perfect Little Children is contrived garbage. No. But both of us came out of this book feeling a little meh about it. Yeah. And maybe we're just trying to go back and justify why we didn't like it. Maybe. I didn't hate it. I want to put that out there. I didn't hate this book. I didn't dislike it in any way. But if I had to rank it among all the books we've read on this podcast, I think it's my least favorite. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of in the same boat. If I can have some notes for a moment. <laughs> uh, not unlike my other podcast, I Have Some Notes with Greg Beaver and Liam Kreswick. In the Venn diagram that is the I Have Some Notes podcast and the Read Along podcast, where they overlap, is Scott. The thing that I think I would have liked in this book is if it had a little more ambiguity about the villain. And it's because we're pointed at Lewis practically from chapter one. And I kept saying throughout the book, like, I, I don't know if it's actually Lewis. I'm, I'm a little suspicious of Flora. And it's not because I didn't want to believe Beth. It's because Beth kept being right all the time about everything. Mm -hmm. You felt it was too obvious. And I felt like Beth's biases and her her feelings about Flora were maybe influencing her decision making. And that's the reason why I kept expecting there to be like a third act twist that never materialized. And I'm not saying that like Sauron is the obvious villain at the beginning of Lord of the Rings and he's <laughs> and he's the bad guy. Yeah, sometimes There's, the bad guy is the bad guy. Sometimes the bad guy is the bad guy. But with a thriller, I, I really was expecting maybe, and especially something that maybe was a psychological thriller, because at the beginning of the book, we're led to maybe suspect that Beth's not seeing what she thinks she's seeing. Right. And people who she loves and cares about are legitimately like, are you sure? Like, you haven't been having a lot of sleep lately. And that never went anywhere. That never turned into anything. And I think that by making... Lewis a more ambiguous villain and maybe planting some hints that Flora's not on the up and up along the way and then maybe at the climax having Beth have to choose between two incompatible versions of what happened Flora's version and Lewis's version and her siding with Flora Lewis may have been the villain but in the end in the epilogue was he and I'm not saying that it's a total downer ending and Beth finds out that she was tricked by Flora. I'm just saying, maybe you leave a lingering doubt with Beth and with us, the reader. Could she have been wrong? I think that would have been more compelling. I think that okay. would have been, that would have been more thrilling to mm -hmm. me. And it would have, it would have added some real danger and some real stakes to Beth because all along the way, it always felt like the obvious and easy choice was made for Beth. And she like, her family didn't suffer because of her obsession with this case. Her legal status didn't suffer because of her obsession with this case. Her business didn't suffer because of her obsession with this case. Her children's education didn't suffer from this, uh, her obsession with this case. And in the end, she didn't suffer from her obsession with this case. Nothing bad happens to Beth at all during the course of this book, except that she's held at gunpoint briefly in one chapter. Yeah. Well, that felt she's scared for a bit and then kills somebody. Yeah, and that felt 
too safe that felt too safe all along the way i feel like it would have been more interesting if in the end there were a more tangible consequence for her even if it is just the lingering doubt that maybe she killed an innocent man and helped a guilty woman and and again that's not to say that means that lewis should have been innocent he's clearly a monster i'm just saying that to me that would have made a more dangerous story yes i agree with you to a point completely reasonable <laughs> uh i think it would have made a far more interesting and compelling story if beth uh like waffled back and forth and if there was consequence and if she had doubts and then she leaned one way and then she leaned the other way but i wouldn't want an ambiguous ending you you want everything to be wrapped up with a nice reason we talked about this before as well the reason i'm so disappointed with this ending is that it left so many things hanging and i wanted that satisfying wrap-up with all of the stringing along and frustration and well what does that mean and we never had got any answers and all of that frustration all the way through the book i wanted it wrapped up and to leave all of it unanswered or even more confusing than when we started would have felt extra dissatisfying to me fair enough i wanted that neat little bow you think you think that there there maybe should have been more danger and more consequences for beth but that in the end it still turned out that lewis was the villain and she was well not even necessarily lewis is the villain i just wanted everything clear-cut and spelled out and wrapped up that's the big one for me wrap it all up give me a where are they now thing at the end i mean they they kind of did four months later they are now in greece yeah but i still have questions that's fair right i wanted i wanted a whole bunch of answers if you're going to withhold answers from me through the whole book you better give them to me at the end and again i'm not saying that the book that we were given was bad i'm just saying that i can think of a way that i think it would have been more exciting to me and i agree with you except about the ending fair enough so how did this story make you feel? Did it make you feel anything? You know, sometimes you read a book and you have a strong emotional response to it, no matter what that is. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you don't. So if you did, what was it? And if you didn't, why not? There were a few plot points in the book, and this is strictly because of personal recent history that were hard to read and get through. And that is because of, again, just circumstances in our lives and in the lives of others we are close to. Yeah. Making uh, unfortunate parallels with our story. Yeah. And I mean, Nita picked this novel. Like this was, we put out a Twitter poll and the vote was Nita's choice and Nita picked this novel. This is all my fault. Practically sight unseen, (laughs) not realizing that it was full of material that would deeply trigger her. It's true. And uh, give her several very visceral emotional reactions. (laughs) Um, I don't know that it hit me as hard as it hit you in some places, but yeah, there were some some passages that were hard to get through. Yeah, and there were a lot of parts in this book that I just couldn't and won't think about too hard because it's bad for my brain. Well, I will remind you that these are fictional characters involved in a fictional scenario and that is one of the things i cling to that that kind of inhumanity uh bothers me on a really deep level well as i mentioned before uh thrillers tend to straddle the line between mystery and horror Mm -hmm. it's not just the horror pace that a thriller tends to deal with uh sometimes they also tend to deal with some pretty grisly crime actually usually yeah (laughs) this one did 
Yeah, my overall feelings about the book, I think the most frequent emotion I had was frustration. I mean, we discussed that a couple times. Oh, many times over. And we were hopeful that it would be worth it in the end, and I don't know that it was. No, see, that's my problem with the ending, right? I didn't find it as satisfactory to compensate for all the frustration. Yeah, like we had a whole cul-de-sac involving not the plot when <laughs> Beth went to Xana's school because of the racist teacher outburst. That oh, what was the point of that, actually? That literally did not in any way affect the story. Right? If you remember, I was like, no, it has to mean something, right? Otherwise, why would it be here? It has to inspire Beth to think of something or remind her of something. And it briefly reminds her of Tilly and only brings up more questions. Uh, like and, a chapter later, too. Yeah, this whole sidetrack. I throw my arms in the air in confusion. I Big shrug. I don't know why it's there. Yeah, like we had posited maybe that it will be called back to later and she'll have the idea to record something on her phone. Nope. But I mean, she kind of does at the hotel, but not in a meaningful way and not in a way that matters in the end. Right. And the, that and, recording never means anything. Yeah, and the damning recording was made by Lewis <laughs> in the final chapter. Yeah. So yeah. It, it like it interrupted the flow of the book and then it didn't actually lead to anything. Like she could have had the conversation with San where she thought about Tilly over dinner. Right? We without didn't having to whole, spend a whole chapter doing something else. We didn't need else. the whole side chapter about a racist teacher. Yeah. I like it's, don't know where it came from. It's an interesting story, but it's an interesting different story that didn't belong in the middle of this one. Right? Yeah. Um, so Sophie Hannah included some uh, subtle themes of aging, right, growing old, and this repetitive mention of weird architecture. They don't seem overt to me. So why do we why do we think that she included those things? Um, why are they there? I don't know. I don't know either. Like there was early on, there was uh, definitely a theme where Beth felt like she was not connecting with her kids, like she was a little resentful of the fact that uh, Flora and Lewis had gone off and had a life without her, um, the fact that she was starting to maybe feel her age a little bit. And we picked up on that. And then like halfway through the book, it just disappears. So much disappears halfway through this the, book. The aging theme, I feel like, is supposed to be part of Beth's character arc, part of her character development. But nothing happens with it. Yeah. Like, as I say, it, it kind of gets quietly dropped halfway through the book. Right. So does the fact that she hasn't been sleeping in days just quietly gets dropped yeah, halfway through yeah, the book. Yeah, we're not going to talk about that. And her, her constant mentioning of unusual architecture, right? Something that stands out all the time. I feel like that's supposed to be symbolic of something. But you can't put your finger on it. Well, and it fizzles out as well. Well, especially because we, we picked up on the fact that Beth has this quirky house that has its own weird architecture and she thinks it's charming. But every time she sees different weird architecture, she's always like, well, that's gaudy and ugly. Yeah. But then we get to the end of the book where they're supposed to be visiting this peaceful villa in Greece and there's no mention of anything. Yeah. Like if you're going to, if you're going to ride the symbolism of that, the weird house where there's something wrong, the weird house where there's something wrong, the weird house where there's something wrong. And at the end you have this perfect little house where there's nothing wrong. Right? To follow that through. But then it doesn't. It feels like she's just throwing in description as filler instead well, of having it mean something. I mean, there's a little bit of symbolism, if I dwell on it for a moment. Because remember that our villain is obsessed with perfection. And 
Beth is finding kind of a weird beauty in all of these imperfect places where people live. And the places where Lewis tends to set up shop look perfect. Like that guest house uh, in Florida, which is just like white on white on gray on white on gray. And it looks very clean and it looks very stylish, but it's like it's empty and soulless on the inside. Well, and and she says it stands out. Yeah. Right. She notices it and it stands out. because It stands out because of how like implausibly perfect it is. Mm -hmm. And of course, the house that Lewis left on Whittier Lane wasn't perfect enough. Right. It was that weird, like classic look mushed in somehow smashed up with a with a modern look. Yeah. And it just looked funny to her. So, I mean, you can read a little bit of symbolism into that. Again, I felt it fizzled out though, and it didn't wrap up to mean anything. It, it didn't. It didn't land. Yeah, it, that's a good way of putting it. It didn't land, at least not with me. Fair enough. Based on a conversation that you and I had earlier, off mic, a thriller is all about the climax and the ending, right? We've already discussed the ending to death, mm-hmm. so let's talk about the climax briefly. Did you find it exciting and engaging and? Uh, for lack of a better word, satisfactory. Um, kinda. <laughs> okay, just kinda. Kinda, like we we saw, and maybe this is just the terrible inevitability of the trajectory of the of the story. We saw, we knew Lewis was going to show up at that house, oh, 100%. and we knew, and we knew he had a gun before it was revealed to us. Plus, I didn't feel like Beth was actually in any danger. <laughs> Like, does that make sense? Well, you didn't think Lewis was going to shoot her? No, I didn't. Because because she's our main character and protagonist? No. Uh, there are So there are different kinds of tension you can have in a story. Yes. There is the tension of, oh my God, will these characters survive? There is also the tension of, oh my God, how could these characters survive? <laughs> like, you know Indiana Jones is going to survive the death trap. The the tension comes from, I don't how? know how he could yes. possibly do it. You know James Bond is going to escape the slow death machine. You just don't know how. But in a horror movie, for example, you have the the question of, oh my God, are any of these people going to survive the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Mm. Um, that's the tension in that. Right. Um, I didn't feel any of that tension at all, either of them, in the climax, because I had no doubt that Beth was going to survive, and I could see how she was going to get out of it. And this goes back to your lack of consequences for Beth. So Flora... There's no danger yeah, for her. Flora drops the hint that Beth's family might not be safe. So Beth phones her family and they're fine. And they're fine. Yeah, it's, it's all good. Carry on. Beth is concerned that the uh, younger Braid children might be put in danger by her investigation. But, oh, the caters have a change of heart and whisk them to safety. Yeah, they're fine. They're fine. Yeah. This plays into that. You're absolutely right. There was no point in that finale where I felt like Beth was in any actual danger, nor was I feeling the tension of, oh, how is she going to get out of this predicament? Because I knew exactly how she was going to get out of that predicament. Lewis was going to overtalk himself. Flora was going to snap. He was going to lose the gun. And Beth was going to end up with the gun. I didn't necessarily know that she was going to shoot him, but I knew that that's how it was going to play out. Yeah. The moment that chapter started, I knew Beth was going to end that chapter with the gun in her hand. I agree with you. It did feel kind of telegraphed. A little bit. Almost almost cliche. Do you think this story would have been made better or even possible if we weren't inside Beth's head? If you're going to tell a story that's kind of a psychological thriller, you kind of need to be from someone's perspective, right? Because you need to be following their psychology. I feel like this book started psychological and ended kind of not. not. And so 
like being in Beth's head and seeing her piece things together, I think was important. And I don't know that structurally this book would have worked at all if we weren't from her perspective. Mm -hmm. No, I, I agree with you there. If you're, if you're not going to be inside Beth's head telling this story. The story doesn't work. It does, but you really, really, really have to change how you tell it. And that I think might ruin that thriller trajectory that we were on. That's all my questions. It's time to play the game. Cast that movie. Yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, we broke it down to five key characters that we felt should be cast. Yes. Um, which is not to say that poor Ben <laughs> is not deserving of being cast, but, but he's such a side character. It's such Why? a bit part. Yeah. Um, so we have decided to cast Beth, Flora, Lewis, Dom, and Zan. Yes. If you want to play along, of course, you can send us your casting picks on Twitter or Facebook, wherever. Uh, we'd love to hear who you think will fit these roles. I'm always interested in a in a fantasy cast that someone's put together for a show. Where are we starting and who's going first? Uh, it doesn't bother me who goes first, but I think we should start with our lead, Beth. That seems reasonable. Let's, uh, let's have you start. Who okay. do you think should play Beth? So I had a, a heck of a time casting this movie because I'm not nearly as familiar with British actors. Oh, good. We both went with an all-British cast. Yes, mostly British. Oh, I went with all British. Did you? Okay. Yes. But uh, I'm interested to hear who who you found. So to to my embarrassment, my first casting choice is not British. So if she can pull off the accent, <laughs> fingers crossed... Uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Do you know who I am? Who you may know as Ramona Flowers. Yeah, well, I mean, she's been in a lot of stuff. She's, she's... been in a lot of other things, but that's where I knew her first, was uh, Ramona Flowers from Scott Pilgrim. I can vouch that she can do Thriller, because 10 Cloverfield Lane is a very good movie, yep. which she is also in and is the lead in. I don't know if she can do a British accent. I've never heard her try. But uh, solid casting choice. Thank um, you. Not who I went with. That, I went with someone a little different. That's right. Also, I think Mary Elizabeth Winstead is a little young to play Beth because Beth is in her mid to late 40s. Yeah. So, and I cast an all-age appropriate cast. <laughs> I went for people in their late 30s, early 40s Fair instead enough. of mid to late 40s. My casting pick for Beth is actor Sally Hawkins. I think there's more to him than meets the eye. I don't know Sally Hawkins off the top of my head. You, Anita, would know her well. As Mrs. Brown from Paddington. Oh, Mrs. Brown. Yes. Okay. Now, for those of you who only know her from Paddington, like Anita. <laughs> that's um, not true. I also know her from Godzilla. That's true. Uh, where she, I called her Mrs. Brown. <laughs> yeah. She is actually a, an incredibly talented and gifted actor. Decorated actor. And has been in a lot of different movies in a lot of different genres. She is roughly in the same age range as Beth. Because she's yeah, in her mid-40s. All right. All right. And she doesn't look like a conventional leading lady. And that is kind of something that is going into my casting choices. And I think that she could carry this movie. And I think that she would be very compelling to watch as she unravels a mystery and seems like a fish out of water and seems in over her head the whole time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. I think we have two solid choices. Sure. Yeah. All right. Also, fish out of water. Huh? She was in yeah. the yeah. shape of water. But yeah. anyway. Very good. <laughs> okay. I went first for Beth. Okay. 
You go first now. All right. I will go next and tell you my pick for Flora. Very good. My Flora has to be a counterpoint to Beth, obviously. Okay. Yes. And she has to be Lewis's quote unquote type, which has to be someone who is gorgeous. So I have chosen mid-40s actor Kate Winslet ah, to play Kate Flora. Winslet. That is another way you win an Oscar. Very good. Yeah. I, I approve. Kate Winslet can handle a, a hefty dramatic role. Yep. She is a very beautiful lady. Yes. She is age appropriate. And I think she makes for an interesting counterpoint to Beth being played by Sally Hawkins in this case. And again, all of my casting choices play into a very specific picture that I have in my mind. So, <laughs> okay. So bear with me as we get there. My criteria for Flora were similar but not exactly the same as yours. Okay. Uh, we needed someone known for her beauty, but I wanted someone who I knew could handle playing broken but hiding it. You know what I mean? Uh, and I went with Kira Knightley. Oh, quite well is not very well. I'm satisfied. Yeah. Can handle a dramatic role. Terribly beautiful. Very much so. Again, my cast is a little bit younger than yours. You you have cast a slight bit younger, yes. Just like five, five six years younger. Not the end of the world. All of all, let's put it this way: all of my casting choices are in their mid to late forties. That's fine, with the exception <laughs> of Zan. <laughs> yeah, with the exception of Zan, that's fine. My my original thought for Flora was like an Emily Mortimer type, but then I couldn't find I couldn't place a, a rest of the cast around her. Fair enough. I had problems matching her up, so that's why I went with Kira Knightley. Lewis Braid. Lewis Braid. You want me to go first? We're going back and forth. It's an actor you've probably never heard of. A gentleman by the name of Andrew Lee Potts. I know a thing or two about liking people. And I did this on purpose. Lewis, to me, needs to ooze charm out of every pore. Yep. And I purposely did not want a quote-unquote triple-A actor. Okay. I did not want top-of-the-A-list actor. But I've seen him do other things. Mm -hmm. He's he's been on British TV a bunch. He did a what, a, what has he done for those he, who might not know who in he the is. weird in the weird sci-fi Alice in Wonderland movie called Alice. Mm -hmm. He played the Mad Hatter and he was very good. Okay, look him up. Look him up because I honestly think he could pull off unreasonably charming and also completely crazy. Sure, like psychotic crazy. I think he could do both. I cast a little bit against type. I've cast um, a, a little-known actor. He was in a niche British sitcom you've probably never heard of. It never really took off overseas at all. It's called The Office. <laughs> and um, this this uh, little-known actor is known as Martin Freeman. <gasps> I mean, really, what kind of a chat-up line is that? Martin, Really? Yeah. Martin Freeman. Martin Freeman is conventionally handsome. You could darken his hair up. Give him a tan, and he would ooze that charisma that you're talking about. And at the same time, I could see him playing dead creepy in that climactic scene. And I can also see him sitting across from Beth at his desk, feet up on the desk, saying, I feel I, I'm sad for you right now. And I think it's a little bit against type because it's Martin Freeman absolutely tends, type. tends to be cast as like a bit of a goofball. Arthur Dent. Uh, Bilbo Baggins. Bilbo Baggins, yeah. So casting him as monstrous Lewis Braid, who seems so affable and charming and gregarious and friendly, but is actually doing a monstrous thing, I think that that would throw people in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. And I can see him paired up with uh, Kate Winslet. Fun fact, they are the exact same height. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. 
It's a fascinating choice. I don't know if I could get over Dr. Watson slash Bilbo Baggins slash Arthur Dent being so terrible. Mm, he's, it might break me. He's done some more dramatic stuff. And he's uh, he's been in at least one horror movie. So, I mean, I think he can do it. I'm not talking about Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> you were going to say that it was Shaun of the Dead. It was well, not. He had like eight seconds of screen time in Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. But uh, he's done other stuff, and I think that he could absolutely do this. And I think it would be an interesting casting choice. Very very unexpected. I did not see that coming. Good job. Let's put it this way. Uh, My second choice for Louis Braid was, no joke, Jude Law. (laughs) (laughs) Other Dr. Watson? Kind of, (laughs) yeah. Um, for similar reasons, but I, I thought the more I thought about it, the more I went, no, Martin Freeman is the right choice. And it's because he's usually cast as the disarming goofball. And that would make a viewer maybe believe him at first and take him at face value I get it, and and have the viewer of the movie be in the same shoes that I was, where I was like, I don't know if Lewis is lying. No, that's fair. And that's, that's what you want in a Lewis braid. Indeed. Shall I tell you who my Dom is? Yes. To tell. Uh, so I wanted someone who could be a little more laid back, also in their mid to late 40s, who could feasibly come across as uh, a partner for my Beth, Sally Hawkins, but also would come across as a guy who Lewis, as played by Martin Freeman, could be friends with and not feel threatened by in any way. Okay. Nick Frost. <laughs> Let's just say the last time I was in this situation, wasn't using a paintball gun. From you Shaun of the Dead, interesting. Okay, first of all, you can't cast Nick Frost anywhere without casting Simon Pegg somewhere. Well, Simon Pegg can be Officer Paul Pollard. I love it. There you go. <laughs> so he's in the movie, and now we're directed by Edgar Wright, obviously. But the point is... I can get behind this movie. Nick Frost, I think, like, he's he's heavy set. He's very affable. A lot of the characters he plays come across as affable, and I could see that as, like, a laid-back dom, but still showing that husbandly concern along the way. The other reason I went with Nick Frost, and I kind of spoiled it when I said because he looks like someone who my Lewis Braid could be friends with without feeling threatened by, is because I want my Beth and my Dom to not look like leading people, and my Lewis and my Flora to be beautiful Hollywood stars. Because, <laughs> no, because no, that, it, it. Fits, that fits the book. That's kind of what my thinking was as the more I was thinking about my casting. Okay. No, you put together a pretty solid cast so far. Who is your Dom? I I came at Dom from a slightly different angle than you did. I cast Dom to match my Beth. Which, to be fair, I kind of did too. Mm -hmm. And to be the, not not the non-threatening friend to Louis Braid, but the, hey, this guy's worthy enough to hang with me. Well, there's that, but Louis also wants to feel better than... He, he, I know. One of the reasons he kept Beth and Dom around was so that he could look at their life and be like, yeah, I've got it good. <laughs> I wanted I, I wanted someone who could play chill but serious because that's what Dom does, yep. right? Dom is super laid back unless it matters and then he turns on the serious mode. Yeah. And I've cast Jamie Bamber. He's a true entertainer uh, and he's a fantastic actor. And yeah, You know him as Apollo from the remake of... Battlestar Galactica. Okay. Because I think he could do it. All right. That is all, apparently. <laughs> that, is, that is all. 
I've I've already explained it, and I ended with a name. I'm I'm worried that uh, that I've put way more thought into this than you, as, <laughs> no, as I often do. You just have a lot more explaining <laughs> than I do. That's all. Fair enough. And so that leaves us off with Zan. Yeah. Who did you cast as Zan? Maisie Williams. Okay. Arya Stark. Well, you know I'm, her as Arya Stark. I'm familiar with her. Yeah. She's she's aged out of being a teenager, though. Mm, a at little this juncture. bit. A little bit. Um, but she can definitely play young. Mm-hmm. I, I had considered casting a 20-something as well, but then I went out of my way <laughs> to find a British actor who was age-appropriate to play Zan. All right. And so I've cast Raffi Cassidy. She was on my short list. There you go. Dark hair, so me- meshes with uh, Sally Hawkins and Nick Frost. Yeah. Yeah. Tal- a, a talented young British actor. Yes. So, uh, And I wanted to give a talented young British actor the role. <laughs> You wanted to give someone a break? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, not that Rafi Cassidy needs a break. No, but... I know. But yeah, an- another break, I guess. <laughs> the right thing to say. So there we go. Casting that movie. Yeah. 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 You put an awful lot of thought into matching up your cast. Well done. Well, I I wanted them to mesh. And I and the more I was looking at it, the more I realized that I had a vision in my mind for how Beth should look and how she she should look standing next to Lewis and Flora. She should look like she does not belong. <laughs> if That's that makes fair. sense. You you put more thought into uh matching up your cast as a whole, whereas I was focused on individual roles. Yeah. And then sort of lining them up a little bit. All right. And with that we have finished our seventh novel. Ooh. Which uh now means that we are moving into our next novel. I'm so impressed with us. Now, previously we would put out uh, a poll. Uh, we have, certainly for the last couple books, uh, asking for maybe a genre to look for. But we had pledged earlier in this novel, partly due to the events of uh, the year, that we would go out of our way to find uh, a black or indigenous author. Yep. And we have found one. Yeah. In the fantasy genre, no less. <laughs> I'm excited to go back to a fantasy book. Yeah. Page count wise, this might be one of our longer books. But uh, chapter-wise, meaning episode-wise, falls pretty much in line with with what we would expect to see. Yeah. So, without further ado, Tracker is known for his skills as a hunter. He has a nose, people say. Hired to find a mysterious boy who disappeared, Tracker breaks his own rule of always working alone when he finds himself part of a group assembled to search for the boy. The band is a hodgepodge full of unusual characters, including a shape-shifting man-animal known as the Leopard. As Tracker follows the boy's scent, he and the band are set upon by creatures intent on destroying them. As he fights for survival, Tracker starts to wonder, who really is this boy? Why has he been missing for so long? And perhaps most important, who is telling the truth and who is lying? Drawing from African history and mythology and his own rich imagination, Marlon James has written a saga of breathtaking adventure. Defying categorization and full of unforgettable characters, Black Leopard, Red Wolf is surprising and profound. That's right. Black Leopard, Red Wolf by Marlon James will be the eighth novel for our podcast. We will begin a chapter-by-chapter read-through next week. And I know you're never supposed to judge a book by its cover, like the old saying goes, but whoever designed the cover of this book, kudos. It is beautiful. It is a gorgeous book. Yeah. Uh, it's it's uh, got a nice heft to it, too. Because, yeah. again, by page count, it might be our longest read yet. Quite possibly. Uh, it, it might be around the same as Memory Called Empire, actually. 
Now that I think about it. But at any rate, I'd have to double check that. At any rate, as mentioned, you will have a full week to get yourself a copy. Uh, We did find a copy of it at our local Indigo, so it is readily available on bookshelves. Uh, You can probably order it or find it for your Kobo or e-reader of choice. Oh, probably. It's in softcover, so it's been out for a little bit. Yeah, and you'll want to read up on Chapter 1 in time for next week. Absolutely. There is is no prologue directly into (laughs) Chapter 1. Dive right in. Uh, There is a cast of characters at the beginning of those, so uh, to help us keep track of, I'm assuming, a vast number of characters. I haven't actually flipped through it at all. Are there maps? Yes. It's a fantasy novel, Nita. Of course there's maps. You've got to have a map. Yeah. There's one. Awesome. So we have more than one map. What is what is this over here? <gasps> Multiple maps. Okay, stop flipping through the book. It's not spoilery to look at the maps. Anyway, so read up on chapter one in time for next week. And uh, in the meantime, you know, uh, while we're searching around town for copies of this book, you might be curious about what's going on around town as well. Certainly, yeah. if you live in Edmonton, where we do, yeah. Uh, and there is at least one local news source you might turn to for that hyper-local news you're looking for. This episode is brought to you by Taproot Edmonton, your source for curiosity-driven coverage of our city, cultivated by the community. Taproot publishes a weekly food roundup, sharing the latest on the restaurants, chefs, producers, events, and more. It's curated by Sharon Yo, a longtime blogger at Only Here for the Food, and a keen student of Edmonton's food scene. Subscribe to the Food Roundup for free at taprootedmonton.ca. Yeah, Taproot Edmonton, uh, one of the wonderful supporters of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by mm-hmm. ATP. There are a lot of podcasts on the Alberta Podcast Network uh, <laughs> on a variety of topics. Not all of them are like local to Alberta or Edmonton or Calgary. Oh or no, Canada. lots of them are just general talking about a topic. Yeah, like my other podcast, I have some notes where we talk about movies and yeah. try to punch them up. Nothing to do with Edmonton. <laughs> Not even a little. So, I mean, even if you live abroad or uh, or f- a far-flung corner of Canada, there's going to be something there worth checking out. You can check it out right now at albertapodcastnetwork.com. When you find another podcast you're interested in, download it on your podcatcher of choice. While you're there, maybe give us a little rating and review. We appreciate your feedbacks. Would you like to give us more feedback? How about feedback on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or Goodreads? Or Goodreads. Or you could just send us an email. Yeah, we're, we're at The Read Along at those social media yes. sites. And our email address is thereadalong at gmail.com. And with that said, as always, we love you. And we'll see you next time. Mm, fresh book smell. Thank you for joining us on The Read Along with your hosts, Anita and Scott Bourgeois, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. All Read Along music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Cover art is by Aaron Beaver. Be sure to join us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Read Along, and check out our group on Goodreads.com.